Welcome to another episode of a Tap on the Wrist podcast. This is Laura, and I'm flying solo this week. We've been on hiatus researching and recording and are so excited to launch season five around the globe. And we are going on a tour around the globe telling you stories about alcohol we've never told before. And that season launches May 31st. However, for the next few weeks, while we continue to record and find the best stories from countries we've never heard of, we are going to share some of our favorite episodes from the past few seasons, but we've stitched them together, so it's combinations you've never heard before. An episode from season three paired with an episode from season one, or maybe it's two and four, but they're some of our favorite episodes from countries around the world to get you super excited about season five. This week, we're telling you the story of the gin craze all the way back from episode 10 in season one, and we're telling you the story of Snugs all the way from season three, episode 71. We hope you enjoy this Stitch Together Around the World preview before season five drops May 31st. I love gin. I know you do. Love a good gin cocktail. Who doesn't? I know. Everyone should. I mean, a gin and tonic. I guess not everyone. Gin and tonic is such a classic go-to cocktail when I go to a bar. You know, I don't like gin and tonics. Okay, well. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) I love a gin and tonic with like a squeeze of grapefruit. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't like tonic, I think. I don't like something about it I don't like. But I do like gin. Okay. So just gin with grapefruit is your, your drink of gin. That sounds great. Yes. <laughs> okay, Winston Churchill. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's like a quote of Winston Churchill where he's like, the best gin and tonic is when the tonic's on the side. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what a cool guy. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, so my story today is quite... Uh, popular when you research gin history and so I'm just gonna jump right in I got a lot of my information from vice.com and it's an article written by Harry Sward I thought you were gonna say Harry Styles (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why you know author Harry Styles no Harry Sword and the title was How a Gin Craze Nearly Destroyed 18th Century London oh so interesting. I, I'm just going to start with a quote that I loved from the article. It says, For many working class Londoners, gin became more than a drink. It satiated desperate hunger pains, offered relief from the perpetual cold, and was a blessed escape from the brutal drudgery of life in the slums and workhouses. It was a cheap buzz that could be had for pennies on any decrepit street corner stand or in the bowels of some stinking cellar, <laughs> and it quickly wrecked havoc on inner city London. And I was like, tell me more, Harry. <laughs> I feel like some of that is still true, but... <laughs> yes, it is. However, when I, I'm going to explain the gin of that time, and it's very different from the gin we drink today. Okay. But let's let's go back even further in history. Gin originated in Holland, so it is of Dutch origination in about the late 17th century. 
And it's very different from the gin that we love and know today. Okay. So in Holland, it was called Jennifer, and it was originated by distilling malt wine because it was pretty cheap at the Interesting. time. Interesting. Right. However, that was disgusting. <laughs> so to like dilute, not dilute it, but to change the taste of it, they added all these botanicals and herbs and tons of sugar uh-huh. and that made it more the the gin that we're more familiar with like the herby juniper flavors okay also they would put juniper berry in it because juniper berries were seen to have medicinal functions so a lot of people would drink the gin thinking it was like a healthy drink in holland okay and what happens is the name jennifer gets shortened eventually to jen and then through translation to english it becomes gin Interesting. Yes. So this is where gin is. Uh, We're going to now go from Holland to London. And London in about the 1680s is already a heavily drinking city. Still is. Still is. In 1680, (laughs) they were drinking a lot. But mainly, they were drinking beer and brandy. Okay. And that all changes when William of Orange comes to power. And he decides that he's going to introduce gin and other hard liquors to the country. It is what he preferred. He was from Holland. Right. And so he comes to Great Britain. He brings gin with him, introduces it. And at the same time, there's a lot of things happening with Great Britain and France. And they are about to fight. I mean, they've been at war, but they're about to be in the Seven Years' War. And William of Orange actually bans taking any brandy from France. Like, they're, they're not allowed to import any more liquor from France okay. into Britain. So all of the brandy that Londoners were drinking is no longer available. And he wants his gin to be so popular that he lowers all of the prices on, like, getting licenses for gin mm-hmm. distillers. And he raises all of the taxes on beer so that... All of a sudden, it's cheaper to drink gin than it is to drink beer. Huh. And everyone starts drinking and making gin. Right. It's funny because I, I, when I think of gin, if I associate it with a country, for some reason, England comes to mind. I'm sure this will explain why. Right. Had no idea Holland was ever involved. Sorry, Holland. Well, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so it actually is, that is how it does. It comes to be the drink of London mm-hmm. because of William of Orange. They had no idea what gin was until he gets there. Okay. So, gin is now the cheapest drink to make, and because of these new laws that William of Orange puts into place, it drives up the gin distillation. So, no one needed licenses. They had very great um, tax rebates or cuts if they were gin distillers, and Everyone starts to drink gin. Men, women, and children. I like that he was just like, you know what? I like gin and I'm going to make everyone else like it too. And they they (laughs) did. They liked their gin. Very quickly, we go from having no gin in London to all of a sudden neighborhoods having 1,500 gin distillers. And everyone was drinking it. Like I said, men, women, and children at almost equal amounts. Which was unheard of. Yeah. Before this, beer was very much like a man's drink. Mm -hmm. And women would drink cordials and other liquors, but more socially. And gin all of a sudden becomes a morning, lunch, and dinner drink. 
For the kids, too. Oh, yes. Because it had juniper berry. And so it was healthy. And medicinal. Gin's healthy, guys. Yes. However, the gin that they were distilling in London was even stronger and more potent than the gin they were making in Holland. Because of the grains that they were growing in Great Britain, it was distilling differently. And this is a quote about the gin coming out of London in the 1700s. Okay. It was more of a throat-searing, eye-reddening, vomit-churning hell broth. Oof. Doesn't sound good. Sounds like breakfast to me. Ugh. In addition to whatever was coming out of the gin distills, they were sometimes adding very toxic ingredients, such as turpentine. Cool, cool. Sulfuric acid. And... These things caused many people to actually go blind from drinking this gin. It was very toxic and unhealthy, but it was really cheap to make, mm-hmm. and everyone was making it, and it was just what everyone was drinking, because right. that's what was available. So the result of this is that by the year 1730, one in four houses in downtown London was a gin shop. It was everywhere which is why they call it the gin craze people were out of their minds i mean drunk all day long drinking this gin right and the gin shops were not great they did not have good reputations they in addition to being where people would go and get gin it was also where people would sell stolen goods people would come looking for sex work they were just kind of not reputable houses and kind of known where shady things happened but one in four homes in London was a gin shop. So like 25%, it's a lot of not things, not good things happening. Right. Gin was called the opium of the time period. They literally say people were addicted to the gin the way people are addicted to drugs today. Wow. It was, it was crazy. Right. Everything you read, everyone is just completely shocked at how addicted to this gin people were especially when we compare it to how gin and liquor is distilled now and how different it is this was literally awful liquid that people were consuming it's like poison almost almost but it was very cheap like i said a few pennies you could get a whole pint and that's how they drank it by the pint another thing that william of orange did is he would give it to his soldiers and his navy men. Seems safe. (laughs) And they called it Dutch Courage. So on board all of the ships and out on the battlefield, they would drink this gin straight and it would give them the courage to go into battle. Wow. So I think it had the nickname Dutch Courage. It had a couple other nicknames, however, though, because with all of this drunkenness becomes like disorderly conduct so people are drunk out of their mind morning noon and night and with that there was violence there was murder there was crime and london during this time falls into disarray and it's gone to a point where they don't know how to fix it and for years like decades london is kind of run by the gin craze and they try and enact laws, and no one follows them. Because, of course not, because they're all drunk. Because they're all drunk. 
So, and I'm sorry, I'm just thinking now, they were drinking this straight. Like, they didn't do cocktails back then. Correct. So they're just drinking straight gin. In pint glasses. Damn. You ordered it by the quarter pint. And this is, like, stronger than the gin that we drink now. It is. Wow. And it's not only the lower class, although it did affect the lower class at a much higher rate, because for them it was a way of entertaining and escaping their, right. their terrible lives and situations. The middle class also heavily drank the gin for a few reasons. I'm going to say, again, they believed it was a healthy drink because of the juniper berries, but it was also known to heighten sexual experiences and revive marital bliss. Mm. So, 10 million gallons of gin were being distilled in London every year during, like, the 1730s to 1750s, mid-50s. 10 million gallons. To help your health and your sex life. To help, yes. (laughs) And it's said that on average, a Londoner drank 14 gallons of gin a year. Whew. Which actually, I mean, that is a lot, but that's every Londoner on average. And so if you think there had to be people who weren't drinking. Right. Which and means then there if people... you're not drinking, I'm drinking 28 gallons. Right. So, you have to, and that's crazy. Yeah. And they were drinking a lot of this terrible, terrible gin. So there were a lot of terrible, terrible crimes. So much so that another nickname for gin at the time was called Mother's Ruin. And it's called that because for the first time, London is seeing women becoming excessively drunk. Mm-hmm. And it's causing them to, in some cases, which I'm getting ready to share with you, not make the best choices for their children and their families. Because right. they're so addicted to the gin. So a couple of these crimes that were committed during the gin craze. Here's one where a cattle a cattle owner sold his 11-year-old daughter to a trader for a gallon of gin. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. When you first started, though, you paused after cattle, and I thought <laughs> that you were going to talk about <laughs> a cow doing something crazy. Well, I paused because it it this I must have copied. It says a cattle drover sold his 11-year-old daughter. And you didn't know what that meant. I don't know what a drover is. I'm guessing yeah. it's like a farmer of some sort. But I, I did pause while reading it. But so, 11-year-old daughter for... That's awful. Gal- oh, it gets worse. Oh, great. This one is another... It's a man who pawned his wife for a quarter bottle of gin. Oh. Like, could you imagine your husband just being like, I need the gin! And, like, in those days, that could happen, you know? Yeah. Ugh. But it's really called Mother's Ruin because of a couple stories where it really affects children. Oh, no. Yeah. It's this. I don't know which one is worse. These next few stories are really bad. So if you are triggered by children mortality, just skip like 45 seconds. So there's multiple stories like this, and I'm just going to share this one, of mothers becoming so intoxicated and sometimes mistaking, like, their child for a log of firewood and throwing their infant <gasps> into a fire. Oh, my God. Yes. Or similar stories like that where they mistake their infants 
for other things. Um, Holy crap. Because they're just drunk on this poisonous gin. Wow. But the most famous crime that comes out of the gin phase that really helped to change the laws in London and regulate the distillation of gin and make it better is Judith DeFore. And Judith DeFore is a terrible woman. But in the year 1734, she had a two-year-old daughter. And this daughter had been at a workhouse, which from what I can gather was you would go, it's almost like a daycare, right? You would drop your children off or not really a daycare, more like an orphanage, right? You could drop your child off for days at a time. Okay. Um, and then come back and collect them. Okay. And so she had done this. She had dropped her two-year-old off and a few days later went back and picked the child up and the child had on a brand new outfit that they had provided at the workhouse and her and her friend went into town and started drinking with the child with them and then they ran out of money and they didn't know what to do and so Judith had the idea to sell the brand new outfit that the child had on okay but you can't just sell the clothes off a baby yeah so they go out to a field they strangled the child, <gasps> dumped the body in a ditch, and then sold the child's clothes for 16 pence and went and bought some gin and kept on drinking. What the fuck? Yes. But Judith was caught. Thank uh, God. She pleaded guilty, blamed the gin on it, but she was executed for her crimes. I mean, that that's fucked up. It's It's really bad. And so I'm going to show you this picture and we will post it. Oh, God, this. what is it of? No, it's not of Oh, Judith. my God. <laughs> this is a baby. <laughs> it was 1736. There weren't cameras. <laughs> you just scared me. Um, so this is <laughs> stories like Judith's and some of the others really started to lead this movement to change the gin situation. Right. But this is a famous political cartoon written at the time, and it was created by an author or an illustrator named William Hogarth. And he published two pictures, and they ran side by side. Okay. One was called Gin Lane, and the other was Beer Street. And so it's kind of hard to see. There is a divide here okay. in the middle. So it is two pictures side by side, and on the left is Beer Street. And if you notice... Everyone in that side is healthy. They have paintings. I was going to say this dude's painting over here. Yeah. They're fixing up their buildings. Things are great. They're like having a romantic moment over here. Oh, love is in the air. Mm-hmm. He's This guy's cheersing with a big pipe in his mouth. Yeah. There's music. Um, actually, I don't think there was music. Like, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there was music back then. That's not what I meant. <laughs> and then on this side is Gin Lane, and there's lots of... Oh my god, there's a baby being, like, thrown. Right, so this is supposed to represent the mothers of the time, and they've got sores on their legs, and her baby is falling over, and she doesn't care, and just lots of... It, it looks like there's, like, just bodies in the street. Oh yeah, lots of death happening in Gin Lane. Sorry. There's a sad dog right here. He's probably not fed because his owners are drunk. 
Anyways. What's going on over here? I, crazy things. I, have, <laughs> I, need to I need a close-up. It looks like the building's falling apart. Like, bricks are falling down. But, um, so there are some descriptions here. So, engine lane, a pawnbroker haggles in the corner. So, that's happening, like, over here, maybe. He's, like, haggling with someone. He's probably selling stolen goods. Okay. There's a, a man and a dog fighting over a bone. An ex-soldier dying in the foreground. A woman forcing gin down the throat of a baby. A coffin maker. And then a house literally falling down in the background. So... You were right. I was right. And so these two pictures were published just to illustrate, like, this is what we had when we were drinking beer. And now that we're so obsessed with gin, we're falling into disarray. Mm -hmm. And... It became very popular at the time, and so much so that people started to realize that the laws did need to change regarding gin. Mm -hmm. So in 1751, the Gin Act is passed, and it was pretty successful. It lowered licensing fees, which, like we've said in a couple other episodes, when you lower the price of something and make it more accessible, more people will participate. Mm -hmm. Um, And it forced sellers to sell only to licensed retailers, and so, no people couldn't distill from their own homes anymore, and only big distillers could make the gin, and so it was healthier, it was safer, no more turpentine, no more driving people crazy. At the same time, there also happened to be multiple years of bad grain harvest, which meant not as many grains were produced, and they right. couldn't physically make as much gin, so there was a shortage of gin, mm-hmm. which all led to people losing money so they didn't have money to buy gin and there wasn't as much gin to make and it kind of changed everyone started going back to drinking other alcohol and in about 1757 they say the gin craze ended in London and people just went back to drinking normally yeah whatever Uh, There was one poem that I really liked that was printed in 1751 in the London Evening Post. It's just a small, a small poem, but I thought it was really interesting. And it talks about the evils of gin and it rhymes. So I really enjoyed it. Okay. It says, this wicked gin of all defense bereft and guilty found of whoredom, murder and theft of rank sedition, treason, blasphemy should suffer death. The judges all agree. They they were not a fan of the gin. No, they were not. Uh, And so, that's, I mean, in 1757 it ends and gin is now just a drink that we all drink. a normal drink. But it's not like the opium of the time. Right. So It's crazy. I know, it's kind of weird because I feel like not a lot of people drink gin regularly it's not the most common right when you go to a bar people are most likely ordering i would say a beer or a whiskey cocktail right and every once in a while i'll be like i feel fancy i want a gin yeah in a british accent (laughs) (laughs) the only way to order it that's the only way to order a gin and so it's crazy to think of gin as the poor man's liquor right for it to be so scandalous and have caused all of these terrible things to happen because I feel like it's a classy drink. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to make the the assumption that anyone listening to this podcast knows what a pub is. 
they're common all over the world, even in the United States. I think, you know, they're probably bigger in the UK, in Ireland and England, but they are pretty big in the US as well. Um, but just in case, you know, someone isn't super familiar, pub is short for public house. Um, they're basically just bars. They're licensed to serve alcohol. And the people source, because I had to see what the people source said about pubs, says, quote, pubs are typically chosen for their proximity to home or work, good food, social atmosphere, the presence of friends and acquaintances, and the availability of pub games. Pubs often screen sporting events such as rugby and football, which is pretty accurate. They're super casual they usually have, like, uh, heartier foods. I was going to say, I think of a pub as a more family-friendly version of a bar. Right, yeah. It's like a dive bar, but you'd go and eat dinner there. Right. <laughs> but you're probably not going to go eat, like, a healthy dinner. It's probably going to be something... It's going to be shepherd's pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, or chicken fingers. Right. It's not going to be, like, a place where you go and have, like, a $20 fancy cocktail. You know? No, It's, it's going to be where you not. have, like, a beer or a cider and some shepherd's pie. Yeah. So, Laura, you may have heard of these because you have family from Ireland, but many of our listeners probably haven't because I haven't. But back in the day, a lot of Irish or British pubs would also have snugs. Have you heard of snugs? No. Like a snuggie? <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, quick. Okay, good. So, so I can tell you about it. I was like, oh, Laura has family in Ireland. She might know what these are. I'm excited that you don't. Okay, so in another episode this season, Laura told the story of a pub here in New York City called McSorley's uh, and how women weren't allowed to drink there until the 1970s. And we were appalled. <laughs> yeah, like the fact that it was so recent. But did you know that pubs in Ireland in general really were almost exclusively used by men until, like, the 1960s. Women, respectable women, quote-unquote respectable... Respectable women. ...wouldn't be seen drinking in pubs up until, like, the 1960s, 70s. That blows my mind because yeah. it's literally one of my favorite things to do when I'm in Ireland. I know. <laughs> I, when I think of Ireland, I think of pubs and, you know, going out for a beer. So this blew my mind. Of course, you know... There were probably women in the pubs, but they were more likely to be sex workers or social outcast, not members of this quote-unquote respectable society. Well, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, these respectable women wanted to drink too, and that's where snugs came in. So, if you Google the word snug, you'll find some definitions that probably make sense to everyone, you know, to fit closely you know, you're wearing something that's snug or enjoying warm, secure shelter or cover. But if you scroll further down, you may also see a British definition come up that says a small private room or compartment in a pub. And that's what we're talking about today. Okay. So to be clear, there weren't any kinds of laws or rules with any validity behind them that said that women couldn't drink in pubs. It was more just like a social convention. So like McSorley's, there wasn't a legal reason why women couldn't go in and drink. They just they didn't just do didn't, it. They just didn't do it. You know, they didn't let women in 
it just wasn't it just wasn't wasn't well, part of the women culture. could go in they just chose not to whereas yes. mcsorley's yes. did not serve women say well same these pubs didn't serve women oh yeah Fuck they them. like yeah <laughs> it wasn't like a law i'm just saying it wasn't a law like it was just the pub's personal decisions not to serve women it was just like a society thing no me gusta yeah no also similar to mcsorley's which if you listen to the episode, you'll know was at one time run by women, by a woman. Even pub, female pub owners didn't allow women into their pubs. So like women owned bars, but they wouldn't let their fellow women in. Right. And I mean, I feel like being a, a barmaid is such a common term when you study yeah. like European bar culture. So they had bartenders or barmaids that were females Mm -hmm. probably as well and owners but like the patrons weren't women yeah it's wild it's so it's whack yeah (laughs) there was one female pub owner in particular that i read about named mary highland um and she owned a bar in a small Irish village, which I forgot to look up how to pronounce the name of, so I'm just going to skip. No, come on. Come on. Try it. It looks like it's Balacola. That's definitely not how you say it, but I don't know how you say it. (laughs) Uh, Sorry to anyone from Ireland, like Laura. So Mary didn't approve of women drinking in her pub. Even later, post-snugs, when it becomes more acceptable. (laughs) Post-snugs sounds like a (laughs) It's like after after you've cuddled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Post snugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Okay, and Mary died in 1996, so I'm not talking about like the 1800s here or anything. It was pretty recent history. But her nephew, who took over the bar, is quoted as saying. A few years before her death, when two women walked in and ordered pints, her reaction was, what is this world coming to? Man, I sometimes I I wish I could have been born in a different time period. And then I'm like, oh, I would not have done well. No. no. (laughs) So in order to avoid this public stigma that women would face drinking in public, women would often choose to just drink at home. They would send someone out to bring them alcohol, like one of their sons or I read that sometimes they would stand outside the pub and wait for a man to bring them alcohol yes sir I'll have another (laughs) but you know sometimes you don't want to drink at home or awkwardly stand outside of a pub and wait for booze so you know you wanted to go somewhere new see friends new faces conduct business whatever it is but If pubs wanted to take advantage of that, of these women who were respectable and wanted to drink in public, they had to find a solution besides letting women into, like, the public rooms where men were drinking. And that solution, of course, is the snug that we've been talking about. So, as I said, as, as I read the definition, a snug was a small private room that had access to the bar They usually had like a frosted glass window so that people couldn't see in and a small window that was used for bartenders to pass drinks through so that no one could see who the person was that ordered it. 
So it's like a private room for women to go and drink in. Yes. I mean, I'm- I don't hate that idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're not getting hit. Well, I guess you could still get hit on, but not by men. <laughs> um, You're not making this worse. <laughs> And on top of, like, the the passing the drinks through a little window, most snugs were also – had locks on them, and they couldn't be opened from the outside. So you can only, like, open them from the inside and let people in. Someone couldn't just, like, open the door and run into the snug because they wanted to protect people's privacy. And an article that I read on winemag.com noted that, quote, British snugs were often more ornately decorated spaces – a place where middle and upper class women could drink in comfort and privacy away from the debauchery of the saloon. Again, it doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> I mean, the fact that it's an option sounds appealing. I just don't want to yeah. have to drink exactly. there. You're exactly correct. Um, but it was like fancier and private. Yeah. I would like it as an option. Yeah. But yes, not, it as, reminds, not as being forced to. It reminds me, I'm picturing there's like um, a bar in the Bronx where... Um, we go to sometimes after work and they have like an upper level mm-hmm. and it clearly was like a, an expansion of the original bar at one point, but they wanted the bartenders to be able to serve that upper level without having to like walk around and upstairs. Mm-hmm. So they just built in like a second bar window. So the bar has like the big bar in the front main mm-hmm. room. And then there's like a little window that you order if you're on like the, the second yeah. floor. And I've always been like, what a interesting idea to have a bar that's like, because it's not a double-sided bar. You can right. only see the bar if you're in the main room. Mm-hmm. But you can order from this window if you're in the second room. Yeah. And so it kind of, yeah, it kind sounds, of sounds like similar. that. Yeah. It also kind of gives me like speakeasy vibes, you know, like. You have to be let in, right? You can't just walk in. You have to order your booze secretly, and they're fancy. Though, I do want to note that there were some in rural areas of Ireland that were not, you know, super fancy and ornate, and they were more commonly referred to as shuts, not (laughs) snugs. Uh, And they were very basic and would sometimes literally just be like a partition as opposed to a separate room. They would just be like a partition up. Interesting. But snugs weren't only made for women. Uh, There were other people in Ireland and in the UK that weren't supposed to be seen drinking in pubs. And so these people had also been using snugs from as far back as like the Victorian era. Like celebrities or like royalty or? I'm going to tell you. Oh. (laughs) I thought you were just leaving it vague like that. (laughs) Uh, So in order to drink in a snug, you typically had to pay more. So... The same drink ordered inside a snug as opposed to the public room of the pub was more expensive. And that means that a lot of people in the upper echelons of society, maybe like royalty or, you know, just super rich people, preferred to drink in snugs because then they wouldn't have to hang out with the commoners. That makes sense. And they could afford it. Police of the time also often used snugs. For example, the Irish police force, the... Garda Shiohana, probably saying that completely wrong. I listened to it like 500 times. Um, But they were formed in 1922, and according to Irish journalist Kian Malloy, 
quote, more than half the officers belonged to the pioneers of the Sacred Heart, a total temperance organization. Such was the emphasis placed on sobriety among Ireland's new police force after independence that from 1926 onwards, disciplinary action could be taken against any officer who, while on or off duty, shows the result of consuming intoxicating liquor, the slightest departure from strict sobriety. So like, if you can't be seen drinking or your job is at risk, what better place to grab a drink than inside this little room where everyone else is also drinking in secret? You know, people aren't going to talk about it. Another group that used the snugs were priests. Oh. Because, of course, they didn't want their Mm parishioners to see them in a bar getting drunk, right? Because that's a good example. So the snug is full of, like, respectable women, police, priests, and celebrities. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, count me in. (laughs) That is where I want to drink. The stories told, the experience, like, I I take it back. I'm about the snug. You're like, let all the normal men have their bar. Next time I go to an Irish pub, I'm going to be like, where's the snug at? <laughs> Show me to the snug. Um, so an article that I read on Mental Floss used an example from Dublin Pub Life and Lore about a priest named Father Flash Kavanaugh. Flash was his nickname, I guess, because it's in quotes. And they said that he would rush through mass. I'm guessing that's why Flash. To get to the pub when it opened. Like, he was like, I need to get this over when I need to get to the pub. Um, That sounds like my kind of priest. (laughs) (laughs) And they said, quote, you'd see him in there with his red vestments, and he'd go right through the bar to a little back snug. So, like, he would still be in his priest (laughs) attire and just run through the bar to go to the snug. Like, flash lightning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, oh, I wanted to include this quote because it's by a woman named Dr. Nicola Nice, and she is the founder of Pomp and Whimsy. I was going to say, it's yeah. Pomp and Whimsy. Yeah, which is a liquor brand that we're very familiar with. So she said, quote, anyone who didn't want to be seen drinking would visit a snug. The local constabulary, the clergy, politicians, it was also a place for married men to bring their mistresses. Well, that's boo. Yeah, that's like the one one. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> so people also use snugs to conduct business, like buying or selling animals. And <laughs> I don't know why you were gonna laugh at that. I got a sheep, yo. <laughs> Cats and dogs. <laughs> They're selling like, like sheep and cows and goats. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Also, I'm sure, likely because women were allowed in them, snugs became very popular for matchmakers. So, our friend Kean Malloy, who I quoted before, also said, quote, it was a place where the matchmaker was found. The matchmaker was usually a trusted old man who, was discre- who would discreetly arrange marriages between the sons and daughters of local farmers and shopkeepers. So, like... <laughs> you can buy a cow and a wife! <laughs> yeah, exactly! <laughs> 
while getting a beer and giving confession. <laughs> it's a one-stop shop. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man. But, of course, these matchmaking and sheep arrangements didn't happen as much in major cities like Dublin. It was more just for, like, the elite to drink in. So, as I said, the idea of women only being able to drink in snugs and having to be separate from men continued into pretty recent times, the 1960s. Aside from the snugs, a lot of bars in England and even in the U.S. created private entrances for women. So a cocktail historian, which is a job I wish I had, (laughs) named Jeanette Hurt said of pubs in the U.S., quote, they have a front door, a back door, and a side door. This side door was the women's entrance. Men didn't want to drink with women, but women, especially German women, did drink. So, like, even over here, a lot of times men didn't, just didn't want to drink with women. They didn't want to see women drunk. They didn't want women to see them drunk. God forbid. God forbid. But, of course, over time, things changed, and it did become more acceptable for women to be seen by men drinking in bars and pubs. And snugs slowly began to disappear. Especially in the 1970s. It seems like that's when they really started to go away. And I couldn't find a definitive reason. I, I guess just times were changing and women had enough of that shit. Yeah. You know? And besides that, snugs, of course, took up a lot of room in the bar. <clears throat> you know, it took up some of the bar space because they had to be right up against the bar. So a lot of pubs realized that they could fit in more people and make more money by literally just tearing down the snugs and making the bar longer. Which is actually kind of sad because especially the ones that were supposed to be really ornate and beautiful, like, it just kind of sucks that they tore them down. I bet there's still some. There are. There are still some. But a lot, a lot were gone. A couple of examples of places that still have snugs, if you want to check them out when you're in Ireland. Although this article, I do want to say, was written in 2017. And I, I, don't, I don't know if, you know, COVID has affect these, affected these places at all. But as of 2017, here are a couple of examples of bars that still had them. So Belfast Crown Bar, which is a historic landmark that opened in the early 19th century, has multiple snugs. I bet they're still open. Yeah. Then Ryan's of Parkgate Street, which is a Dublin pub dating back to 1886, also has a really nice snug that you can check out. And I do want to note that another article that I read from 2018 estimated that only 16 of the hundreds of Victorian-era snugs still remained in Dublin. Oh, wow. Which is sad. Although it did note that some bars now purposely have snugs or are called the snug because it's like now like a trendy thing to have. And I also want to note that those snugs fell out of style. That wasn't the end of public drinking issues for women in Ireland. While researching snugs, I also found an article on Timeline.com that focused on a badass lady named Nell McCafferty. Like, seriously, look her up. She did some fucking awesome things in in pursuit, pursuit of women's rights. But apparently in the 1970s, even though snugs were kind of going out of fashion and women could drink in bars, Dublin bars could refuse to serve women pints of beer unless they were accompanied by a male chaperone. Because beer was unladylike. Nope, sir. Yes. So, like like I said, they could go to bars. They just couldn't order beer if they were alone. Right. Which is stupid. Anyway, Nell was not having it. So she led 30 women 
to Neary's Pub in central Dublin, and all 30 women went and lined up against the bar. They each ordered a brandy, which was fine because it wasn't beer. (laughs) And once their brandies had been lined up on the bar, they ordered a single pint of Guinness among the 30 of them and were refused. So they basically drank, shot their brandies down, walked out of the bar without paying because, as Nal said, he refused to serve, we refused to pay. Even despite that badass claim, though, or badass display, it wasn't until the 2000 Equal Status Act that the act was finally completely outlawed. So it wasn't until 2000 that they, like, said, bars can't do this anymore. That's crazy. Isn't it? It's, like, so recent. So recent. It, it like, boggles my mind because now, or at least prior to COVID, I could walk into any bar in the U.S. or Ireland or England and order a beer. Right. And, I mean, I wouldn't because I don't like beer, but, like... <laughs> It just, it boggles my my mind. I just, I can't. That we were alive when, like, some of these laws were still in place. Yeah, 2000. Like, I I feel like a lot of bars probably weren't doing that at that point, right? But you know there are some. But there were probably some. That's why they had to make it officially outlawed. Right. Oh, man, I can't. Um, And I did, oh, I did want to mention that if you want to see a snug being used back in the day, Apparently, Peaky Blinders, the, sh- the TV show, does have snugs in them. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I do want to watch that show. I feel like I feel like we've we've talked about, about them several it, times. Yeah. Like they've come up in our research several times. Well, I mean, the whole premise I think is a family that owns yeah some kind of distilling yeah organization, and it's organized crime, and it's right. But apparently, the Shelby Gang holds meetings in the garrison pub snug for privacy, of course, because they were so private. So definitely check that out. And that's really all the info I found about snugs. There actually wasn't that much. I was like, I I found a few great articles, which I'll, you know, mention now. But I don't know if it's because I'm in the U.S. and, like, they were more of a thing in, in the U.K. But if you guys find some really good snug articles, let me know. But my sources. <laughs> I don't know why when you just throw the word snugs out. It just... <sighs> I'm still thinking about post snugs. <laughs> post snugs. Post snugs. You had to sell sheep out in public. <laughs> so the first and foremost, like the most comprehensive article I found was from Mental Floss and it was called A Brief History of Irish of the Irish Snug by Chauncey Farrow. I'm sorry if I said that name wrong. It it just was like a huge source of information for the story. I also used Wikipedia a little bit. There wasn't that much on there though. And then I used three uh, three other articles. <laughs> I like the name of this one. Snug Life. <laughs> How Ireland fell in love with the pub Snug from the Journal News by Amy O'Connor. Uh, the Underground Spaces Were Drinking While Female Was a Radical Act by Ishe Govender. Again, I'm sorry if I said that name wrong, but it was on winemag.com. And that article actually had a lot of cool info, like in general, about the history of women drinking in public. So definitely check that out. 
And lastly, in 1970s Ireland, women weren't allowed to order pints of beer, but this one did by Stephanie Buck on Timeline.com. We really hope you enjoyed both of those stories this week. We love sharing some of our favorite episodes with you again and again. If you have never listened to them, we hope you've learned something. If you have heard those before, we hope we made you laugh or bring back a memory. Make sure you're checking out our social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at a tap on the wrist. You can check out pictures from both episodes and join us and promoting season five. Again, season five launches May 31st and we're going around the globe, taking a look at countries and cultures and alcohols we've never explored before. We are very excited about our new season and we hope you are too. And we can't wait to show you what we found. Cheers.